Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, a new poll says all three parties in Ontario are virtually in a dead heat. What does that mean? UK leader Theresa May will quit June 7th. So much for Brexit. And in an era where we can't seem to get anything built, the concept of a cross-country corridor, specifically for rail, power lines, telecommunications, and pipelines, is being considered by the federal conservatives. Isn't this a great idea for all? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, new polling numbers uh, for Ontario by Ipsos finds that the three parties are virtually in a dead heat with the Liberals slightly ahead, 32%, PCs at 30, NDP at 29. To talk more about all of this, Sean Simpson is with us, Vice President of Ipsos and on the line now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. So give us a break on this, a breakdown of this. Are you surprised at uh, what your what your results are showing? Well, that's a pretty short honeymoon period uh, for a government that was really just elected a year ago with a majority mandate. Was it really, uh, was it a honeymoon period or was it just an overnighter? Well, yeah, it uh, packed the weekend bag and then it yeah. didn't end very well. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you compare it to... Uh, the, a year after Justin Trudeau won federally, uh, we were still having sunny ways. Approval ratings were still, you know, 50% or better. Yeah. Uh, one year after they were elected with a majority government, it was a very similar popular vote, around 40%. But here in Ontario, now we find that uh, Premier Doug Ford's approval rating is only 30%. That's, that's hurting a little bit. How do you explain the rise in the Liberals, considering they're not even official party status and, and, you know, don't even really have a permanent leader at this point? Yeah, well, part of it is the uh, the NDP brand, and I'm not just saying in Ontario, but but federally under Jagmeet Singh is 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 struggling a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, we've actually got Green Party doing fairly well. They 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 won in uh, in PEI, of course. They've made inroads in Guelph, and so I think people are are looking at others other parties as an alternative. But the Liberals are, are the default, uh, you know, non-conservative vote in Ontario. And I think they're going to be emboldened and encouraged by this. You know, after the, the drubbing they got a year ago, um, they're back in the game and they don't even have a leader. <laughs> yeah, they're back in the game and they don't even know it. Uh, yeah. Do Ontarians <laughs> do Ontarians wish they had voted for Kathleen Wynne? Oh, I, no, I don't. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, I, I didn't ask the question, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, they, 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 Ontario was looking for change. Uh, for eight years, right? It looked yeah. like we were going to change, and then uh, you know, John Tory was talking about funding school. Like if he said nothing, he would have been elected eight yeah. years ago as the as the premier. Uh, and then you know, Tim Tim, or is that eight years or twelve years ago? I'm losing count. Yeah. And then Tim Hudak, of course, uh, uh, he uh, uh, he looked like he was going to win, and then some funny math on job creation cost him the the you know, the government benches. So um, I don't I don't think that uh, that people would necessarily have supported win again but some may have buyer's remorse over uh, over or Ford or at least how he's interpreted this mandate uh, in the GTA uh, the Liberals have 40 percent a significant lead over the PCs at 28 the NDP at uh, 26 others at six uh, do you think that has anything to do with the premier meddling in the politics of the city um, yeah, well, that's hard to say. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think um, I think you know the same people who supported him on the council, the same kinds of people who support him um, uh, 
provincially, uh, we know that he still has a, a decent amount of support in places like Etobicoke and Scarborough, uh, but, uh, you know, elsewhere, uh, support is, is, is lagging. What's actually striking me as, as, as being most interesting is in the 905, which I think is really the region that, that delivered um, the province to Ford, I would call it revenge of the commuter, uh, they seem to be the ones who have now turned their back on him so quickly into the mandate. Uh, you know, we still got three years to go before another election. I think yeah. this might be just a function of, of um, the Premier ripping off the bandit as quickly as possible so to get some oxygen and then three years to heal before he goes back to the polls. And I suspect that, uh, you know, that five-year plan to balance budget might just materialize after four years. Uh, that's what many are saying. Uh, and you partially answered this question. The 905 is where you saw the biggest flip-flop. As you mentioned, it seemed as if almost right after the election, uh, uh, opposition forces and, and organizations started mobilizing and such, and the tide very, very quickly turned. How do you explain uh, this flip-flop so quickly? Yeah, well, I think what's happened is that the, the, the government has has now been forced to put their message into action, right? right. That message that we're going to balance the budget, you know, we, we've got tighten the belt, austerity's coming, we're going to do all these things. And our polling shows that 52% of Ontarians still actually support a move towards balancing the budget. But I think they're, they're being seen as throwing out the baby with the bathwater and, and, and targeting some, some programs that are still really, you know, sacred, sacred cows and, and, and almost untouchable here, here in Ontario, unless you want to pick a fight. Um, so when we asked Ontarians if they support reducing spending on program areas, on every single one we tested, the majority said no, hmm. but you want cuts, right? So uh, now the government's sort of stuck trying to sort all this out and seeing where they can make cuts that have an impact on, on you know, slaying the deficit, but at the same time not putting everybody up in arms. Way back when, on, uh, Kathleen Wynne called Ontarians bad actors for saying one thing and then not willing to tighten the belt for the other. Is that what this is? I mean, everybody wants, wants fiscal restraint, but nobody wants to give up anything. Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, we want it all, right? We want more yeah. affordable housing. We want uh, we want to protect the environment, but at the same time, we don't want to pay a gas tax. You know, we 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 as a as a population uh, uh, are are difficult to please because we we know what the goal is, uh, we know what the end goal is, but we 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 leave the details up to the politicians, and then somehow they they break our hearts when they make the tough choices and and uh, and and cut some of those programs that we love so dearly. Um, how do the Liberals react to this, considering, you know, not much, you know, we haven't heard much from them in the last little while. Does this wake the sleeping giant? What happens now? Well, I think they have an impetus to get their leadership situation sorted out sooner rather than later. You know, I know it's often the case where uh, parties will plan to have uh, the leadership convention maybe 18 months ahead of the election so that, you know, there's some buzz. And then you've got a new shiny leader getting all the media attention heading into the election campaign. But, you know, they... they, they uh, they were down, but they're clearly not out. And in fact, they're right back in it uh, in spite of themselves, you know, without doing anything about it. Um, so maybe they, they decide to capitalize on, on this uh, um, early um, 
uh, disapproval of, of Ford and get their leadership in place uh, sooner rather than later. How do you feel if you're the NDP today, considering that you're supposed to be the official opposition? The third uh, uh, liberals are now the third party that they used to be, aren't official party status, and and now we have the liberals ahead, thirty two percent, the PCs at thirty, NDP at twenty nine. I mean, this is all extremely close. But why isn't the NDP taking a greater advantage of this? As you said, the Liberals don't even have a leader. They're still licking their wounds, and they're already ahead of the NDP. Yeah, you feel pretty crappy if you're in the NDP because you've actually, uh, despite the fact that the the, the Premier is down 10 points, uh, or the the, the incumbent's down 10 points, and and you at 34%, or I think it was in the last election, you're down from that too. Um, when you should have been the one capitalizing on it. So I think you've, you've missed an opportunity there. And I think we're going to see the NDP um, throwing just as many barbs at the Liberals to try to knock them down a little bit more than, uh, than we'll see you know, law, uh, attacks on the government. Will we see that? Because who do you direct it to when there isn't a leader? Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, that that makes the en- unenviable position for the NDP, right? Where they've, you know, their, their bigger concern is probably on the left because Ford will take care of himself on the right. <laughs> yeah. Are Canadians looking for another option? Uh, it, it seems as if more people are. It seems as if in some situations the Greens are generating more generating more buzz than the NDP is. Could they could they be in the position of a th- official third party? Uh, and replace the NDP in that position anytime soon. Oh, I, I think so because um, we've seen now in PEI that uh, a vote for the Green Party is not wasted. Right? They they can win seats now, um, and it's not just you know Elizabeth May seat or the one seat in 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 Guelph. Uh, they've got a chance at at uh, you know maybe maybe not not next election, but the one after you know starting to, 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 to form a chance at forming government or at least official opposition, and that affords the money and media attention. And, 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 you know, I think it starts to snowball from there. So I suspect that in the next federal election, the NDP won't do terribly well because they're going to lose a lot of support to the left. How will, uh, if, if, like you say, uh, and as we've seen in the past, the Greens just keep making ground and keep increasing and, and, and do eventually move ahead or certainly close to the, uh, the NDP, how does this change the political landscape in, in Canada? Oh, beyond going over from three to four parties, but you know, yeah. a lot of time people are having a hard time pinning them, whether they're left or right. It, it depends on the issue, really. Yeah, the Greens don't. As opposed to just left, right. Yeah, as opposed to just everybody just thinking they're they're left. Yeah, now I I think that's kind of the the default assumption, but I think fiscally they actually have some you know right leaning policies when they get a chance to talk about them. But I think what it does is it probably helps the Tories, right? Because you're going to have more vote splitting on the left hand side. Uh, and you're going to have the same people who always vote conservative, you know, older people, men, um, you know, oftentimes uh, slightly less educated as well. Um, and, and they don't they don't tend, t- tend to change their mind as much as those people who are flopping back between the liberals, the NDP and now the Greens. Uh, in regard to uh, and I've mentioned this a few times to some that uh, that with the all the attention uh, to the Greens that this, you know, will split the left. Uh, what do the liberals do here? Do they try to outgreen the Greens? Um, that being said, Elizabeth May uh, just last week talking about 
um, forming, you know, gathering uh, uh, momentum for a, co- a coalition to take yeah. on Sheer. Is that the right yeah. approach here? Well, yeah, the Liberals are in a, in a tough place on that because um, if you try to outgreen the Greens and your assumption is that people are voting for the Greens because they like their policies, uh, which I think is wrong. Uh, people are voting for the Greens because they don't like the other option. Yeah, it's a protest so vote. I, They're replacing the NDP as a protest vote. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, while the the environment is a, certainly an element for it, my analysis has, has shown that, um, you know, among half of the people voting for the Green Party, it's not because of policies. It's just it's because of some other other reason, like like a protest. So I think the liberals still need to focus on, you know, being liberal and trying to be that moderate uh, centrist, uh, that centrist voice. They've been trying to outflank the NDP on the left. And, uh, you know, yeah. in my mind, the more that all these parties try to move left, the more room there is for the one party on the right to maintain their position. I've never understood why, because we saw it provincially with Kathleen Wynne. She kept moving over farther and farther and farther and farther to the left, just trying to cut the NDP off at the pass. And, and you know, it seems that the same thing's happening here, where it, for the federal liberals, that's not needed. I mean, they they can certainly afford to be more a more centrist party than what they are. Do you believe? Yeah, well, I, I think they, they always try to differentiate themselves from the conservatives by moving over left and seeing if we can we can yeah, as you say cut cut the NDP off at the knees and and make sure we don't we don't lose support there but I think you know my my understanding of Canadian politics and you know I, I follow this <laughs> pretty well yeah. is that Canadians like the center yeah uh, and um, you know, and I, but I think that every I think that every time that the liberals try to hammer the right and hammer the right, it just makes them look more and more left as opposed to the center. Yeah, and, and I think if, if and, and hey, that's why Jean Chrétien did so well, right? Yep. Because he was in the center when yep. everybody else around him was 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 in was in shambles. And I think there's a you know a lesson to be to, to be learned there. Um, and as long as the liberals, um, you know, are in the center and they don't appear to sounds too elitist. And by that, what I mean is, you know, kind of governing with this we know best attitude, which I think sometimes uh, undermines them uh, a a lot, and they seem out of touch. And that's where I think the conservatives and where this sort of populist thing is going is they seem to be the one, at least in their messaging, that is most in touch. But then, of course, they have the difficult task of governing and trying to put some of that messaging into action. And that's why Ford's having so much problems. How big will climate change be in the next election? How big an issue? Yeah, you know what? I I think it is going to be a significant issue because it's a significant point of differentiation among the parties. Um, And, you know, the the, the gas tax and pipelines. I mean, it's all the thing is, is that the environment isn't going to be its own issue. It's always wrapped up in the economy. Right. And maybe wrongly so it's juxtaposed as well we're going to create jobs or we're going to or we're going to protect the economy the environment one or the other i don't think canadians believe that you know but polling i've done suggests that they believe that you can do both mm. and so the party that manages to balance that and have a reasonable approach to protecting the environment while not you know stealing money from canadians or at least that's how it's perceived to be as a tax grab and while actually making improvements to our approach uh, with the, with the environment which Canadians also want to see the person who strikes that balance is going to win that argument so are Canadians tired of the extremes are are Canadians looking for that person in the center that party in the center well I, I think that Canadians at the moment uh, have been uh, at least 
experimenting with the grenade in the system, right? Yeah. And I think ultimately they're going to find that that probably isn't going to work all that well. Um, and then we'll probably come back to the more, um, you know, typical moderate centrist approach. But for the time being, uh, we're upset about the way th- things are going. You know, business is doing well, markets are doing well, but me individually, uh, things are just becoming more difficult to afford. And so w- what people have been looking for, we're seeing it all around the world in Brexit and the United States and France, is that people are, are endorsing uh, those parties and those people who are not part of that normal establishment or who are who want to change things up. And that's why we have Trump. That's why we have uh, well, why we had uh, Rob Ford in Toronto and Doug Ford in Ontario. And, uh, you know, the jury, I think, is still out on all of this to see whether or not we continue down that path or go back towards it. Do political parties, political leaders understand that? Do they understand why these people got elected? I, I found after the election of Donald Trump in the United States that the Democrats were were, were so shell-shocked, they, they just couldn't handle the fact that they picked that person over their person. Do they understand yeah. why they got defeated? Do they get it? Um, I, I think Sometimes they understand why they got defeated, but I, I always struggle uh, with um, how governments interpret their quote-unquote mandate. You know, we have a mandate to do this, we have a mandate to do that. Well, I don't know about that, because in Canada we spend more time defeating governments than electing them. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, this, this most obscure policy that they talked about in their platform, if they get elected, they're like, we got a mandate to do this. Not really. Nobody really cared about that. You know, <laughs> just they, they, you know, there were one or two things that people that people honed in on during the election campaign, and and you know they want you to do that, but um, uh, you know they, they they see their their the whole platform is the the, the mandate carte blanche. So do you, getting back to the Ontario, uh, you're pulling an Ontario that shows all three parties virtually at a dead heat. Um, what do you expect uh, as we move farther into this mandate? And as you mentioned earlier, it seemed that this government is doing all the tough stuff up front so they can give yeah. more and make it feel warm and fuzzy at the other end. Yeah, I suspect that the, that the Tories will rebound. I think that this um, uh, you know, fall in approval rating and, and popular vote for them is a is a knee jerk reaction to a lot of bad press that they're getting around the cuts and and stuff. You know, the interesting thing is is when I saw the budget that they brought out a couple months ago, it actually seemed quite reasonable and measured. And reaction to it was was pretty good, but they seem to have lost control of the message here. Yeah, and um, uh, and it's spiraling and and. You know, uh, one of the casualties here are teachers, and that's a pretty vocal and difficult group to, to, to get in the trenches with. Sean Simpson has been with us, Vice President of Ipsos. A three-way tie, uh, the latest polling showed, virtually, anyway, within the margin of error. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were, uh, we've been talking about Brexit and, um, and Elizabeth May and 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 everything that uh sorry Theresa May not Elizabeth May <laughs> whoops a daisy boy that green party they're getting more popular than we know uh anyway and and you know i often felt uh sorry for her in the sense that um uh she's put in this uh terrible predicament of trying to guide uh the uk through all of this mess and it seems that no matter what her solution was somebody didn't like it and it never went anywhere and we saw a lot of political posturing over the whole course of this 
this whole uh, event way back when. And uh, and now she has taken the fall for it. And, you know, I'm, I often sat back and, and thought, well, which one of these people can do anything better than what she is trying to do? Does does somebody have the golden solution that, that everyone else is missing? Or is this just an impossible uh, argument to win? Let's bring in Jerry White, Canada Research Chair in European Studies, Dalhousie University, and is on the line with us now. Jerry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So is the U.K. better off or worse off now? Uh, now that uh, Theresa May is standing Has, down? Yes. I think the U.K. is definitely worse off now that she's standing down. And I think, you know, regardless of how you feel about Brexit or even about herself, I think that that's fairly clear. Um, I mean, this is likely to plunge the whole process uh, into an even higher level of chaos than it has, you know, previously uh, previously been marked by. I mean, it's negotiations are ongoing; they're not going super well, and so replacing the chief negotiator uh, at that moment would not be a strategy of anybody's choosing. So, I think, however you feel about any of the characters or the situations, UK is worse off. Uh, she said she had done everything that she could do uh, to try to convince MPs to support the withdrawal deal that she had negotiated. Is somebody does somebody have a better idea here? Is somebody like what, or, or is it just a case where nobody wants to really uh, have a, a leadership role here, and they just continually make them walk the plank? I think it's more of that second one there. To be honest, I mean, again, you want to try to be sort of. Uh, somewhat neutral about this. Uh, you know, it may be that this that this could all work out, um, but I haven't heard any strategy that would indicate that anybody can figure out how to make it work out. Um, I think that the problem that people keep um, butting up their heads against is the problem of the Irish border. Yeah. And nobody has really come up with a good solution for that. Um, and that's, uh, that is going to be a real uh, stumbling block going forward. Um, the uh, the Republic of Ireland uh, has definitely dug their heels in on that, and the EU has supported them, uh, which I think is correct. Um, and so that problem has to be solved in some way. You can keep an open mind about how it's going to be solved. So, and basically but, the, the issue is, is once you close the UK off to the European Union, then obviously borders go up. They don't want a border between Ireland and the rest of the UK. Yeah, that's right. And so the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 is predicated on the idea that there's a, a, a effectively an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and so there, but the Good Friday Agreement includes support for a lot of organizations that operate on both sides of the border as though they're, you know, more or less operating yeah. in the same country. Um, and so there's a very real way in which lots of the things that make the Good Friday Agreement possible are going to be much harder to operate if there's like a real live functioning border uh, between those two countries with, you know, customs posts and slowdowns and stuff like that. Uh, considering the history of, of what's happened in the UK and Ireland and such, um, is a special sort of circumstance or deal or what have you, is it possible here? I mean, both, you know, even the UK, the UK and the EU, they all know the difficulties that, that have been had with this uh, with this um, issue over the years, is there not some sort of of common ground here where there is an exception? What's your position on this? What, yeah, what, so, what should they do with this? So I think that there does need to be some kind of special consideration made for Northern Ireland. It needs to have some kind of special status. That's a very politically delicate 
uh, matter because the 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 hard end of the unionist position, uh, people, uh, the hard end of the unionist community, which is to say the people who favor the union between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, right? They will not accept anything that makes Northern Ireland feel like it's somehow less a part of the UK. You know, Belfast is just as much a part of the UK as Edinburgh and Cardiff and Manchester. I mean, that's important to the unionist community, and so they won't. They they see any kind of special status like remaining in the EU as something that would that would weaken their connection to the rest of the UK, and so it's very difficult to get that crowd to accept to accept that. Um, I th- I think that that crowd, to be honest, is persuadable. Um, maybe not the union, the leadership of the Democratic Unionist Party, which is super hardline, but I think unionists in Northern Ireland, on the whole, are pretty open to some flexible solutions. And there are two of them that people usually talk about. Uh, one, my favorite is, and possibly the most esoteric, is called the Reverse Greenland situation. Uh, the Reverse Greenland proposal. Uh, so, you know, Greenland is part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Denmark's part of the European Union, but Greenland is not part of the European Union. And so they decided to stay out of the European Union because they didn't want to accept the fishing quotas that came that came with right. EU membership. And so if Greenland can be out of the European Union, theoretically Northern Ireland should be able to be in the European Union. Mm-hmm. It seems to work for Greenland. And so that's one solution you, you hear bandied about. The other solution you hear talked about sometimes is called the Dalriada solution. And Dalriada is a kind of a medieval, uh, a medieval kingdom that made up the North northern part of Ireland and Scotland, um, because Scotland, of course, uh, voted, you know, quite favorably in terms of, of remain. It's about, I think, I yep. don't have the numbers in front, I think it's about 60%. And so that, the Dalrida solution proposes that both northern Ireland and Scotland would together have a kind of a special status where they would still be part of the United Kingdom, whereas the rest, sorry, where they would still be part of the European Union, whereas the rest of the EU then, or the rest of the UK, geez, I'm really mixing up my acronyms today, whereas the rest of the UK would leave the EU. So those two solutions, the the reverse Greenland solution and the Dow Riata solution, I think those are possibilities. You know, complicated, much to be discussed, much to be negotiated, much to be figured out, but that's what everybody should be talking about. So not, nobody's you, talking about that. So do you think do you think that there is a greater chance of coming up to a solution coming uh, up with a solution for Northern Ireland, one of the two that you just talked about or whatever? Do you think there's more of a chance of that happening? Or another referendum and just blowing this whole thing out of the water anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Being honest, the, those two solutions that I just uh, that I just ran for you are favored by like nobody except for you know weirdo political scientists yeah. and you know cultural historians like me. Um, and so you know Boris Johnson is not putting forward the Dalriada solution. Yeah. Um, and so the other referendum. On the other hand, that gets talked about a lot. Um, and so I, I know that there's serious support for another referendum among the Liberal Democrats and among certain r- remain sections of, like, the Labor Party. I, I think that there, there are a lot of people who want a second referendum. I don't know about that. I think that they are overestimating the chance that they're going to win that. I think that there's a sense that, oh, if we just ran this referendum again, people know better now and they would vote, they would vote to remain. And I, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. Um, that's a tactical kind of a problem. I think kind of ethically, though, and I think that this is really where Theresa May, uh, this is where the, the story of her <laughs> downfall lies. That's just kind of not, that's kind of not on to have a referendum and then not get the results you want and then go back to the people and say, right, why don't yeah. you just try that again there and see if you get the right answer this time. It that's, certainly does look like there, nobody wants a solution to this, though. Yeah, I think nobody does want a Nobody can come up with a solution. And so I think what, what, I think what this is going to be remembered as is a kind of a massive failure on the part of the British governing elite. Everybody from the civil service right on up to the, to the cabinet of the day has just massively 
failed effectively. I mean, I think that that's, no, again, I, no matter how you feel about Brexit, whether you feel about whether the U.K. ought to stay or leave the European Union, I think that that's how people are going to remember this, is as a massive fail on the part of the of the UK's governing elite. Uh, so what happens now? She's out. A new leader is. Uh, uh, they will choose a new leader for the Conservative Party. Where's Boris Johnson in all this? Well, is he going to come out smelling like roses? Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. He's going to come out smelling like something. Um, he's <laughs> um, he's definitely perceived as the front runner. Um, I mean, he's somebody with a big personality. Um, he has uh, you know a massive media presence, one that he's built up from his you know earlier career as a uh, as a journalist. I mean, he's a. Uh, Definitely, so the odds makers, I think, are favoring are favoring Johnson. Um, God only knows what that would look like. Um, I mean, again, you want to keep an open mind about these things, and maybe you know he was. I think a lot of people have fairly good feelings about the work he did as uh, as mayor of London. So you know, um, so he's um, he's he's perhaps not as buffoonish as he sometimes enjoys presenting himself as. So um, the Boris Johnson thing, he's definitely the front runner. There are other people in the running though who I think are, you know, some uh, both both. Worse, better, and worse. And again, I try to keep sort of a open mind about this. This is not my problem. I'm not a UK citizen, but um, but you know, Penny Mordaunt, uh, who's the current Defense Secretary, she's sometimes talked about as a possible successor, as being somebody who is, you know, reasonable and thoughtful and serious. Um, and um, and the other person who I think is sort of an outsider candidate, but who would be good for the race anyway is Rory Stewart, mm. um, who's a bit of a younger guy. He had been in the British Army. He had um, served in Afghanistan. He wrote a book about about walking across Afghanistan. Um, he's a really kind of interesting uh, guy, a little bit of a younger guy. He's 46. And so those two, um, the Defense Secretary Penny Mordaunt and the International Development Secretary Rory Stewart, they're kind of, they strike me as like interesting um, intelligent, reasonable people um, in the Theresa May model, to be honest. Um, and so there are other people sort of hiding in the wings, though, such as, you know... Um, I'm going to have to cut you off there, Jerry. Uh, right. Jerry White's been with us, Canada Research Chair in European Studies, Dalhousie University, talking about the changing of the guard uh, in the UK. Theresa May announcing she will step down. Jerry, thanks so much for the time. We'll have you back. Much appreciated. No sweat. Thanks. You have to wonder... Uh, this uh, scapegoat, uh, uh, could she have possibly have succeeded here? Could anyone, any leader, have possibly succeeded here? Uh, it seemed that uh, nobody wanted to listen to anything she had to say or, or any of her suggestions, um, but nobody really ha- has a better one. <laughs> Leading us to wonder, uh, is the UK better off today? Are they are they better off or are they worse off? Now they're, they're in the same state. They just don't have a leader. Let's bring in Brian Lewis, professor of history, McGill University. He is on the line now. Brian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. Worse or better off now, the U.K.? <laughs> that remains to be seen. Um, it's certainly not at all clear that uh, the successor of Theresa May is going to be able to do uh, a better job. Uh, it, um, it is true that she played a weak hand very, very badly over the last three years, so I'm not sure that anyone really laments her going, but it's possible that um, her successor could be an even worse prime minister. Uh, again, if she can't do it, who, who can? What, what suggestion is lying in the wings that we haven't heard? Any of her successors uh, would have to go back to Brussels and would be faced uh, with the uh, same determination uh, by the European Union um, not to negotiate uh, further. There is a deal out there that is their final offer. 
Um, so, you know, the, the only real way uh, out of the impasse uh, in the end is going to be either no deal or uh, a general election or um, a, a second vote, a second referendum. If there is a general election, chances are you were talking about an, a referendum. D- does the does the sitting party hold a referendum, or does this become an election issue? And one of the parties that's running makes it an election issue by saying we will have another vote on this. I think it would probably be like that. Yes, because um, the successor to Theresa May is probably going to be from the the hard right, from the Brexit uh, wing of the party. Uh, and uh, they're going to uh, probably try and push for um, something close uh, to uh, a no deal because it's going to be, I think, impossible to uh, resurrect uh, Theresa May's uh, deal. Um, and so the question would then be um, whether there is uh, enough opposition within Parliament uh, itself to uh, stop that from happening um, by forcing uh, no confidence in the new prime minister um, and um, bringing about a, a general election. Uh, if um, the Labour Party went into that uh, election uh, determined uh, to, to remain, uh, then it is possible there could be, after the election, uh, a second vote. How is the European Union uh, viewing this? With a certain amount of trepidation. Um, they think uh, that uh, we are now closer to no deal uh, than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly does not want to have to deal with, um, with Boris Johnson. Um, they know what he's like. Um, they have been experiencing him and his uh, anti-Europeanist uh, perspectives um, since the 1990s when he was uh, writing in the the Daily Telegraph. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they've experienced him more recently as as Foreign Secretary um, when uh, they found him extremely difficult uh, to deal with. So um, they're thinking that uh, if Boris Johnson does become the next Prime Minister and and he's the favourite at the moment, uh, then the the chances of uh, Britain crashing out with a no deal um, are, are much enhanced. And, of course, that will be very difficult for the European Union, particularly because of the Irish situation. So uh, if it does crash out, as you say, and there is no deal, how long can that last? I mean, where does that go? Um, then the, the the notion that it's going to be a, a clean break and Britain can just sail off and do its own deals right. is... is um, very much a fantasy. Um, Britain would still have to negotiate uh, with the European Union uh, on terms uh, regarding uh, the Irish border situation uh, on any uh, hope of getting uh, some kind of favourable trade deal with the European Union. So the negotiations uh, would continue, but Britain would be in a much um, worse off position to take part in those negotiations. How how are citizens of the UK viewing this now that it, you know, considering everything that's happened and now the leader is is out? They're extremely polarized. I mean, I, I think we're going to see um, in the European uh, election results, uh, which will be revealed uh, on Sunday, massive polarization in the country. 
Uh, it's possible that uh, Nigel Farage's uh, Brexit party will have got about uh, a third of the vote. Um, and uh, the Remain votes uh, will have gone strongly to uh, the Liberal Democrats uh, and uh, the Greens and to a certain extent to the, the new party, Change UK. Um, and uh, the old established parties, uh, the Conservatives and uh, the Labour Party, um, will have lost support uh, dramatically um, because they have been seen as either not delivering on the referendum and not producing Brexit or pandering to the Brexiteers and not standing uh, staunchly behind Remain. Um, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether the Remain vote uh, is uh, stronger when you add up um, all of the votes uh, from those different parties uh, on Sunday or whether the Brexit uh, vote uh, is going to be stronger. The position of the Labour Party in all of this, uh, sitting on the fence, um, has probably been uh, disastrous mm. for its prospects uh, of uh, forming a government anytime soon. Brian Lewis has been with us, Professor of History, McGill University. Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This sounds like a great idea. And the reason it sounds like a great idea is because they've been talking about it for a bazillion years. Uh, so it's certainly not new. Uh, the concept of a cross-country corridor, um, specifically for rail, power lines, pipelines, is being considered by the federal conservatives. And, you know, we did this with the railway, did it with the Trans-Canada Highway. Why wouldn't we do it for energy? It just seems to make sense. Or is it needed? Is it worth it? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So we've done this for railway. We've done this with the Trans-Canada. Yeah. Why not energy? I, I agree. And, and it's, it's not just doing it for energy. It's the idea of bundling all of them together into one pipeline. Now, I can't remember if they said, I, I was reading up very intensively on this, and I can't remember if they did include railroads, but they certainly included uh, the electrical yep. grid. It's roads, was, rail, pipelines, electricity transmission, yeah. and telecommunications. And I was much more focused on the telecom and the uh, grid, because um, we're not going to build multiple new railroad systems. That's just the reality of our country. You know, we're more and more a services society of, uh, you know, digital ideas, digital economy, and that sort of thing. But one thing that uh, I think we're going to be building more of is certainly uh, the grid as we move off of uh, fossil fuels over time. Uh, the one thing that has almost never been discussed by environmental groups and other groups about, you know, when they say, we've got to go to electric, you know, cars and electric heat and electric this and electric that, there's going to be a gargantuan increase in the number of hydro lines. Um, yeah, being uh, produced across the country, and we already know that that that's not without controversy. You know, there's people that say that being underneath or near hydro lines causes cancer, and yep. there's been all kinds of research and, and and litigation on that. So the point being that if they create one mega right away, then instead of as we do now, we have to go off and consult with everybody and everybody, and then we have to put in permits upon permits upon permits. Um, for a pipeline, for a grid line, for telecom, for et cetera, why not just get the thing done with and do one mega 
uh, clearance or uh, approval. And so you go in uh, for, and uh, get the, it's a one-off, and you create this corridor, and uh, you don't have to go back multiple times to this board and that board, the National Energy Board, the Electrical Board, you know, is it national, is it provincial, and so forth. And it could even be, I think, facilitated by an act of parliament and, uh, and, and joint uh, um, equivalent uh, legislation passed by the uh, provinces through which it passes. Uh, would this, would a plan like this have solved the many pipeline issues that we are now seeing? Would it, or is this, uh, you know what, we don't want these anyway, whether they're down a corridor or not. Is that a separate issue? Something like this would have alleviated a lot of these problems. I agree with you. Um, I don't think it would make the conflict go away. Um, the angles, the environmental groups, and the activists that are opposed to pipelines would realize that they would lose their leverage um, yeah. over the long haul. Uh, what they've realized in the last 10, 20 years is that they have enormous leverage over every last project. Every time a new project is proposed, it doesn't matter if it's the rebuild of an existing pipeline or a brand new pipeline, doesn't matter if it's oil, doesn't matter if it's gas, electrical grid, they get many more kicks at the can. So they can keep on kicking at the can and delaying, 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 project after project after project after project. If you So went, this wouldn't necessarily speed up pipelines? Well, yes and no. Once you finally got through the arduous process, it would be forever. In other words, you wouldn't have to go and do it again and again yeah. and again. That's the, the, the genius of this proposal, I think, is that yes, there'd be fights like no tomorrow, and uh, by these activists, because they would argue, you know, that it's going to cause damage to the environment. You know that right away. And, uh, and, but once you get the, um, you see, uh, sorry, the one other thing I want to make is, uh, on this is that it's going to be more difficult for activists and, um, and environmental groups to oppose this. I'm not saying they won't oppose it, but I don't think they'll have the same degree of public opinion uh, as support for them. Who's going to say, look, I, I want to uh, have brownouts in my neighborhood uh, because I don't support a grid line coming, you know, electrical wires coming into the, into the uh, city? Or uh, I don't want, um, um, you know, Internet in my house because I, you can't build the trunk lines across the country mm. um, because of the opposition. Uh, in other words, a lot of these other uh, things that would go in the corridor are things where there's a lot of public support, yeah. like telecommunications, yep. um, electricity. I mean, who's, who's opposed to electricity? I mean, you know. So my point is, is that's for that reason, I think that they would fight even ten times harder because they know they would only have one kick at the can. Right. That is to say, they would have to protest this, and then once this mega corridor is created across the country, the game is over. You can't go on protesting, right. you know, forever and ever in a day. So this is an old idea, nothing yep. new here. Why hasn't this been done already, or is it just that there hasn't been a need for it because we haven't seen the fighting going on? I think the latter, Scott. I mean, up until very recently, these were, these. Uh, I'm talking building railroads, building grids, building pipelines, of course, was not that controversial. Yeah. Oh, people would object a little bit. Can you move it over here, you know, and to bypass this community by 10 kilometers or something, you know? And, and in fact, if you look, and I have looked at the maps uh, produced, fortunately, by the National Energy Board on their website, and you can see maps of pipelines. <clears throat> and it's fascinating because they were built much later in Canada's development than railroads. So you can see the maps of railroads across Canada, and they go through every little village in Hicktown, and of course they run into big cities, right? Whereas when you look at the, the map of the, uh, for pipelines, 
they by and large bypass. They run. Uh, they bypass cities and villages and towns. Yeah. They run through the rural. In the, I put it once on power and politics, through the flora and the fauna, and the only thing at risk is the black flies and the mosquitoes, and they don't have a lot of fans in Canada, starting mm. with me. And and so my point being that um, you would be able to root these into areas where there just aren't a lot of people, right. and and that has the added advantage that the uh, there's not going to be a lot of nimbyism going on, not in my backyard because there's nobody there. Right. And and of course you will. Um, the land is vastly cheaper. See, the right, even if you don't buy it, you have to pay some kind of a leasehold for the right away. It's still going to be cheaper because the land is so cheap in the, in, the, in the rural like that. So there's many advantages, and I think the reason they didn't before is that there's a lot of upfront planning. And they've even said, I saw one figure, it was $80 billion to do it from one end of the country to the other. And there was no need to in the past because, you know, they went through with relatively no, uh, uh, you know, yeah. real problems. So can this be done? You think about the size of a project like this. This goes back to the old days of the railway and the highway and such. Can you get other parties on on board with something like this? I think you'll get a lot more on board than you will for just building a pipeline. With a pipeline, as as one of the uh, analysts, who was a professor actually who proposed this at the University of Calgary, and he said, you know, with pipelines, the benefit is at the front end of the pipeline where you put the oil into the pipe, and at the other end of the pipeline where you unload it and, and sell it and make money. But in between, there's no benefits really to those people who have a pipeline running through their, if not their backyard, yeah. through their property. Whereas you don't have that situation with electricity. Everybody benefits from electricity yeah. unless you're off the grid and living like a mountain man or a caveman or something, and I don't know anyone who's doing that. I mean, we need electricity literally to run our computers, to run our fridges, you know, to have our lights at night, and, you know, it's not even bothering repeating it. Same with telecom. And so the point is, there's many more beneficiaries. And so if you bundle all of these beneficiaries, all these people that are going to, you know, use these different uh, energy um, and communication sources, then it's going to be harder to mobilize against it, and there's going to be a lot more support for it. Yeah, good and point. And so I think... I'm not tri- uh, trivializing the amount of money, but I think that politically it would be ultimately easier to get it through because in blocking it, you're not only blocking a pipeline, you're yeah. blocking Everything new else. grid, the yeah. new electrical wire uh, towers and so forth. So I think it would be, if there's a political will, you know, Scheer has made this a commitment of his, uh, a promise of his, of his election campaign. And if he got elected, um, I'm sure that's one of the things that he would be calling on the premiers to meet about, you know, have a first minister's meeting about, let's get going on this, see, you know, if we can make it happen. Uh, We certainly live in a very divisive world right now. Could this be something that unites us, or will we all fight over the route? Um, There'll be some fighting over the route, but I think the trick, when I say the trick, the key, the key to gaining, maximizing, to maximize the support is to have it bypass the cities and the towns and the villages. Now, some listeners will say, wait a minute, how do you get it in then? Well, of course you have spur lines, as yeah. they're called, running off the trunk. But the trunk would be running across the country. Think of the trunk as almost like a giant backbone. Yep. And it would not be running through downtown Toronto or downtown Ottawa. It would be running through the flora and the fauna and open fields uh, and the rural uninhabited, mostly part of Canada. Remember, over 85% of Canadians now live in the urban. 
and and these towns and the villages are depopulating as more and more people move. Uh, you know, you talk to people in small towns and villages, and you see you, they, they uh, you know complain about this all the time, and they're really worried about the future of their community. I have a cottage in Cardinal, Ontario, lovely place, lovely people, and you go there. And there's hardly any young people. Yeah. It's all older people, and they're my age. Mm. You say, where are all the young people? Well, they all went to Toronto. Yeah. They all went to Vancouver. They went to Ottawa. And so the point is, there's, there's, we're depopulating as we speak, year by year by year. In another 10 or 20 years, it'll be up to 90% in the urban. So there's going to be less and less and less people in the rural so we'll have vast parts of Canada now uninhabited will become even more, um, you know, larger chunks uninhabited. And so much of it is crown land in Canada, unlike the states. Right. And so there, it's, I'm not saying there's not going to be opposition. There will be opposition from environmental groups without a doubt and social activists. But I think that it'll be a lot easier to pull it off, especially, as I said, if you root the trunk through the rural, remote parts of Canada with spur lines going into the big city. This seems like a no-brainer, Ian. Uh, Can you see, do you see this having legs? Now, obviously, this isn't something that'll be done overnight, and it certainly won't help any immediate pipeline issues because it'll be forever, decades before they get this done. Um, But but it just seems like a no-brainer. I agree, and and I'm not sure it would take decades. I mean, it'll take. I don't. I'm not suggesting it could be done in you know six, twelve, or eighteen months. Yeah. But I, I think if the premiers got on board, and and you know normally Quebec wouldn't be supporting pipelines, but if you say to them, this is going to mean Quebec that you can run pipelines into Ontario and start selling your really cheap electricity to Ontario Hydro. They're only five and six cents a kilowatt hour in their exports to the United States, and of course in Ontario now uh, it's thirteen cents a kilowatt hour scheduled to go up to 18 19 cents in the next five years so it's more and more attractive for for ontario to buy it from quebec but i've read on this studies that have said to export large amounts you're going to have to build some major new uh transmission lines uh because our transmission lines <laughs> run north south not east west and right. so this corridor would be appealed to Quebec, who is not a fan of, of pipelines, as we know. So it, 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 because everybody's going to benefit from it, you know, the telecom's going to benefit, electricity industry is going to benefit from it, consumers, electricity consumers are going to benefit from it. I think you could put together a winning coalition that wouldn't take 20 or 30 or 40 years to, to then build the, uh, to build up the corridor. You might be able to do it in five years or something, especially if the premier's legislature along with the federal government and invoke, uh, you know, the um, the federal undertaking uh, in the uh, Constitution Act of Canada. How do you think the Prime Minister will react to this? Uh, well, he didn't propose it, so, you know, we, and this is the nature of politics, you know, you tend not to, I yep. mean, sometimes you do have the same policies, but often parties differentiate themselves by being opposed uh, to what the other guy is proposing. So it's going to be very, very intriguing for Mr. Trudeau. And I say that because he has a, uh, he's carrying a lot of baggage right now, especially in Western Canada, where they just simply don't trust him on, on uh, energy resor- uh, natural resource development. And uh, and it's not just in Western Canada, but it's the most pronounced and acute there. And and so I think that there's going to be pressure on him to endorse the idea, but then he could differentiate his position from the Conservatives by saying, but we will insist on 
very stringent safeguards similar to Bill C-69 that will ensure the highest environmental So now, now we'll be guaranteed that the corridor won't get built, just like a pipeline. Well, that's, I was just going to say, <laughs> you know, that allows him to speak out of both sides of his mouth. You know, I'm yeah. for the economy and I'm, I'm for environment. Uh, I don't, uh, the reason I'm saying that, I'm not being a partisan at all, nope. it's just that every serious critic, and I don't mean politicians, I'm talking uh, companies, uh, steel companies, uh, electricity companies, have all said that B-69 is going to make it almost impossible to develop any energy project. I actually spoke to Martha Hall Finley, a former liberal cabinet minister under Paul Martin, at a conference very recently, as in three weeks ago, and she said if C-69 goes through without any changes to it, it'll be almost impossible to get any energy or any natural resource project uh, up and going. And the, she's not the only one who said that. The uh, the Chamber of Commerce has published op-eds in the Globe and Mail saying that. Likewise, the um, Manufacturers Association, and likewise the Business Council. So, you know, it, it, if it goes through, it's going to really play havoc. But if a new government was elected, they'll probably amend that to ensure that a corridor could be established while maintaining, you know, decent uh, environmental standards. Is this a defining moment for Andrew Scheer? Many have said he just kind of blends into the wallpaper, doesn't stand out much. Is this an issue that he can wrap his arms around? I think much more so than any other of the issues he's wrapping his arms around. Um, and I mean by that, the, the, you know, he's, he's playing a defense, uh, uh, defensive hockey mm-hmm. on the carbon tax, um, and uh, likewise on immigration. Um, and uh, you know, uh, so what I'm saying is this allows him to get out front and show leadership saying, look, I am the leader on the, on, on, uh, the economy and development and natural resource development, not the liberals, and here's my plan, and this is why I'm out there. And it, and it plays into his natural, um, when I say natural, the cons- competitive advantage of conservatives, because the brand of the conservatives is that they're very pro-growth, pro-economic uh, development, and so this isn't something that people are going to say, oh, well, they're just saying that. This, this is this is part of who they are. It's part of their brand. It's part of their identity. And uh, so it, it, it's not a stretch for the conservatives to say, you know, we're really for this. And so I think he's going to have more credibility on this issue. And I'm not saying he won't have any credibility on the other issues, but there's going to be more skeptics with the other issues, whereas on this one, I could see many people, including people that disagree with him, saying, oh, yeah, well, for sure the conservatives support this, because this is, yeah, this is, their, this is what they believe. So I, I think he's got the possibility of really generating some traction on this issue, on the corridor, energy corridor across Canada issue. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, speaking of the concept of a cross-country co- uh, corridor, specifically for rail power lines, pipelines, telecommunications, etc. Ian, thanks for the time. As always, have a great weekend. Same to you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.